All right, and let's pray as we begin. Father, as we come to this part of your word this morning, the book of Judges is a very sobering one. It describes life as it is when it is lived apart from you and how desperately we need you. It shows us the sinfulness of our hearts. It shows us the condition that can come to a country or a nation when they reject you and turn away from you. And God, just like Israel, we need that one who will redeem us and save us. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is that perfect deliverer. And so today, guide us as we look into your word. Teach us. Open our hearts to see what you have to say to us today. We ask it all in his name. Amen. This past summer, the Olympics were held in London, England, and many of us, I'm sure, were watching that as we uh, kind of followed the events and the success of the athletes there. But there was a sidelight that really interested me, too, and that during that week of broadcast, or a couple weeks of broadcast, I should say, uh, one night, uh, NBC aired a special feature that was narrated by Tom Brokaw, that was on the history of England, in particular, the battle for Britain prior to World War II. And it was very, very powerful and inspiring as they told the story of how close, you know, our world history, in a sense, came to being very different indeed. In the summer of 1940, all that stood between Nazi Germany and total domination of Europe was 20 miles of salt water, the English Channel. Uh, They had overrun France and the Netherlands and Belgium. They had dominated uh, Europe and kind of just run right through it with their army and their Luftwaffe. And uh, Goering predicted, you know, as they were there on the edge of the English Channel, that it would just be a matter of days, weeks at the most, before Britain would surrender too. And Hitler would be in control of all of Europe. And in those days, in 1940, the fate of the British people rested in the hands of some unlikely heroes. The Royal Air Force, these 18 to 20-something-year-old young men who would be asked to defend her skies against this German onslaught. And some of those young men weren't really well-trained. Some of them had only had 10 to 16 hours of flight time. And they were asked to go up and engage in these air battles that would be the difference in whether or not England survived. And by the grace of God, they succeeded. The bombing of London was horrific, but they prevented Hitler from invading England, and they held out long enough for America to enter the war, which was Churchill's goal all along. They were unlikely heroes, these brave young men who risked everything, who put their life on the line for their country. And it was of them that Winston Churchill made this very famous statement. He said, Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. These young men were unlikely heroes who made all the difference in turning the course of that war. Well, today we are going to look at some unlikely heroes in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, if you had never read it before and you read parts of it this week, you know you know that there's a lot of fighting, a lot of violence that's going on in there. And if you read through the whole book of Judges, you also get a feel for the immorality and decadence that was there too. 
The book of Judges covers a 300-year period in Israel's history. There was no central government. Each tribe took care of their own affairs, and occasionally they would come together. But these judges that they talk about in this book come from different tribes in Israel, and they deal with different enemies. It was a low point in Israel's history, characterized by idolatry and lawlessness and immorality. Judges 17.6 summarizes the whole period well when it says that in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone was a law unto themselves. Now think about that. I mean, imagine America in that way. Imagine living in America with no central government, no state government. You have individual cities and you have maybe tribes that join together, you know, to kind of defend themselves. And each one has their own law, their own sense of justice, their own sense of what's right or wrong that's in their best interests. You'd have anarchy and chaos. You'd have violence and decadence. And that's exactly what was going on in the book of Judges. And when the situation got so bad, the people cried out to God, and God would raise up judges to lead them. Now, these judges are not like what we picture in our mind when we think of judges today. They weren't men or women sitting with robes and sitting behind a bench with a gavel in their hand or something like that. These judges were military, political, and spiritual leaders. And God used these unlikely heroes to accomplish his purposes in that time period. Now again, we're going to look at the book of Judges in a thematic way rather than chapter by chapter as I draw out some of the things that we can learn from this book. And first of all, there were two mistakes that Israel made after conquering the land. Two mistakes that were very serious indeed. The first one was this, that they did not drive out all of the Canaanites as they had been instructed. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 28, it said, When the Israelites became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. They disregarded this mission that God had given them to take the land, and instead, as they began to dwell in it, they kind of thought, you know, this might be handy to have some of these individuals who could be forced labor for us to carry water or cut wood or mill the grain. And so uh, that's what they did. They began to compromise and allow these nations around them to live with them. And they would be a thorn and a snare in their history. After Joshua died, there was no obvious successor to lead them. And the nation fell, about, fell apart into these tribal clans. And the second thing that was a serious mistake is that they did not teach their children about God and his great acts of deliverance. They began to let that fall by the wayside too. And we read about that in uh, Judges chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. This would be on page 103 in the story. And it said in verse 10 that after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them 
and they provoked the Lord to anger. I'm going to stop there. So here they are, that generation that saw all of the miracles, saw God bring them into the land and demonstrated his might and power, that generation that experienced the manna in the wilderness and saw the Lord lead them with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, died. And a new generation grew up that did not know the Lord or those great acts that he had done, and their hearts began to turn away from God. And instead, they began to worship the gods of the Canaanites, the Baals, the Asherahs, the other gods that were part of that pantheon of their worship, and they walked away from God. Now, what I want to illustrate today is how, in a similar fashion, that can happen to us if we are not intentional about teaching our children and passing our faith on to them. I've got three chairs up here this morning. Some of you have been in uh, contagious Christianity, and you've heard this before or thought about it, but it's the illustration of the three chairs. And the first chair represents those who have come to know Christ and who have a personal relationship with him. And they were converted maybe out of a very pagan background and you came to know the Lord and you know that he changed your life and forgave your sins and you've seen that difference that Jesus has made. And because you tasted life on the other side, you never want to go back there again because you know the difference that Jesus makes in a person's life and heart. And when a person has that kind of first-chair experience with Christ, they want others to know him too. And they're committed in terms of their church, their relationship with Christ. They want to serve and use their gifts in some way to honor him. But if that first-chair believer is not intentional about passing his or her faith on to their children, it's going to fall away. It's going to fall away. And even if, you know, a first-year believer as a parent does everything right, you know, as you think of all the things that you could do, there's no guarantee that that child is going to pick up on the faith because they have to make that decision too, to trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord. Nobody can believe for you. But if there's this gap where the faith is not passed on from that first generation to the second generation, what happens? Well, the second generation grows up with kind of a nominal Christianity. It's not a genuine Christianity, it's in name only. And if you ask them if they were a believer, you know, they'd say, oh yeah, I'm a believer, you know, I'm I'm a Lutheran, I'm Catholic, or I'm E-free, or, you know, they'd identify that they have a church, but they really aren't actively involved. You know, there's other things in their life that just, you know, are more interesting or maybe pull them away from their time going to church and so there's sports and hobbies and work and activities and leisure and and they begin to compromise their faith and they begin to pick up more and more of the values of the world and they drift in their relationship with Christ because they've never come into a genuine first chair relationship with him but what will happen to their children then in that third chair They will have no Christianity at all. Many of them will grow up with no knowledge of God because when they looked at their parents, they saw this kind of hit-and-miss Christianity, more miss than hit. 
And they didn't see it really being important or lived out in their life, so why should they bother? And they might look at their grandparents who had a passionate faith, and they might think, you know what, Christianity's for old people, it's not for me. In fact, I really don't know that many young people that are even going to church these days, and they really do not grow up learning about God or His Word or what it means to know Jesus. And what we see in America is we see that being lived out from one generation to the next. I mean, we all know people that would fit into those kind of categories. I see it too when I do a wedding sometimes too, when I see the generations and I look at where they are in their walk with God. I can see differences at times in a family or in a life situation where they really have not uh, had their kids who have picked up on the faith and are walking consistently with him. Now, as I said again, you could do everything right and there's no guarantees. But the question we all need to think about is how do we pass on a genuine relationship with Christ? How do we help our kids come into that first chair experience with the Lord? And I think that's where it goes back to those things that, first of all, we need to pray for our kids daily that they would have that kind of relationship and understand the difference between nominal Christianity and true Christianity that's a heart relationship with God. And we need to model it in our own life, a passionate spirituality, a love for God that affects everything that we do, where our kids can see that Jesus comes first in our life. And then we need to teach them the scriptures. We need to bring them to church. We need to talk about it in our own way, just like... um, God had said to the Israelites that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and you're to teach your children. You know, when you walk by the way, when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, there was to be this passing on of the faith. And fourthly, I think for those of us as Christians here, we need to put our children in places and opportunities and situations where they can hear about God from other people where they will be stretched in their faith and where God can speak to them. And that's why we strongly encourage you as your kids get older, send them to camp. Send them and encourage them to go on mission trips. Let them see the world, see the needs of people around us and see the difference that God can make not only in their life but in the lives of others so that they can have those kind of situations where they've got to step out of their comfort zone and be challenged and see again the difference that Christ can make. It's a serious responsibility that all of us have and it really goes back to our own relationship with Christ. You see, there are two profound lessons that I believe we can learn from the book of Judges. The first is that our culture can influence us toward evil. All of us. All of us. doesn't matter if you know Christ or, or if you are strong, a mature believer, or a younger Christian in your relationship with Him. All of us can be influenced toward evil by the world around us. We can drift away from the Lord. Movies, media, entertainment. Uh, schools, teachers, if they don't know the Lord, friends, if they don't know Christ, can change or affect our values and our morals. You've heard the statement, bad company corrupts good character. That's in the book of Corinthians. And Paul talked about that, how the company we keep can affect our values and our character. 
And I look at what's going on in our world today, and I think even this uh, vote on Tuesday on the same-sex you know, marriage issue, like are we going to define marriage as being between one man and one woman, or are we going to redefine that and open that thing up? I think that's even an example of how the culture is affecting the world around us. The world is taking something very clearly defined in Scripture as the union of one man and one woman and trying to redefine it. And they're even trying to use Christian language to do it when they say that it's about love or it's about the golden rule or it's about freedom or those kind of issues instead of dealing with the passages that talk about marriage where Jesus himself said, Have you not read the Scriptures? That at the beginning God created them male and female. And for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. God's pretty clear and I don't see how you can redefine that if you value the scriptures and what God has said. But the world's not at that point. And so here's the world that's trying to redefine these things according to the way that they see it, and we have these kingdoms in conflict. A second thing, though, that we learn is that Christianity is only one generation away from extinction. I mean, if we do not teach our children about God and pass that on to them, if we don't model it ourselves, we are in trouble. Every generation needs to have a personal encounter with the living God. They need to come into this kind of close, personal relationship with Him. And as parents, we need to think about, how do we do that? How do we do that? What's our example like? What are the kids seeing in us and our faith and the genuineness of it? And what are we doing to help them to come to know Christ in that personal way too? Well, what happens in the book of Judges is that Israel will fall into a repeated cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. You could take those four words and you could actually draw a circle with arrows between them where sin is at the top. And when they sinned and fell away from God, then God oppressed them, allowed those to come who would oppress them. They would go deeper in this cycle and come to a point where they saw their need and repent, and then God would raise up a deliverer. But sadly, rather than staying the course, the cycle would be repeated again and again six times in the book of Judges. Listen to what um, the scripture says, beginning at verse 13, where we left off in chapter 2. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. 
But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. So here you have this cycle of sin. The people sinned against God and they worshiped pagan gods or the idols around them. And then it went to oppression where God removed his hand of protection and allowed the surrounding nations to oppress them. God sometimes allows us too to again feel the consequences of our sin. And then there was repentance where the people cried out to God for help. They turned to him in repentance. That's what the word repent means. In Hebrew, the word repent means to turn. It's the word shuv, to do a 180, to turn around. You've been going away from God. Now turn back to him and walk with him. And then finally came deliverance where God would raise up a judge to deliver them. There are 12 judges named in this book. Six of them were major and they have larger sections devoted to their story. Six were minor judges. The six major judges that we read about were Othniel, who delivered them from the Mesopotamians. There was Ehud, who delivered them from the Moabites. Deborah, from the Canaanites. Gideon, from the Midianites. Jephthah, from the Amorites. And Samson, from the Philistines. There was one other, too. He's a little bit lesser known, but his name was Orkin, and he delivered them from the termites. No. <laughs> That was just to see if you're listening, okay? <laughs> All right, that was totally margin, okay? That's, that's over there. But what God did with these nations was he allowed them to remain in Israel to test them. He said, I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. Does God do that today? Is he testing us as individuals? Is he testing us as a nation to see whether we will walk with him or turn away? See, we can fall into the same cycle of sin and oppression. And we need to repent and turn to Jesus as well. What God did then was he raised up judges who would deliver his people. They were unlikely heroes with flawed characters. You're going to read about them and you're going to think, how could God use individuals like these with their character? The Bible doesn't approve of everything that they did. It just reports what happened. It doesn't clean up their lives and make them perfect. And it's a reminder that God can use us too because we are not perfect either. But I just want to touch on three of these judges briefly. One of the ones who was named here was Deborah. She's found her story in Judges 4 and 5, and she is unusual because she is a woman. She's the only woman named here. She is a prophet and a judge. And she directs Barak, the leader of their army, to go against Sisera and this nation that was oppressing them. And Barak hesitates, and then he goes, and because of his hesitation, Deborah tells him that the honor of victory in this battle will go to a woman. Barak will rout Sisera and the enemies of Israel, and the commander Sisera of this foreign army will seek refuge in a place that he thinks is safe, and he will go to a village that he thinks is loyal to him, and he will be invited into the home of a woman named Jael. 
And he goes into that tent. He is weary from the battle. He goes down to take a nap. And she is the one who would kill him by driving a tent peg through his temple. Jael won the victory for Israel over Sisera. And the land had peace for 40 years. Gideon is another judge. Gideon was a farmer and a reluctant leader. His story is told in Judges 6 to 8 and page 107 in the story. The Midianites were the nation that was oppressing them severely. They came upon them like a swarm of locusts and devoured everything that Israel had. That's a very vivid word picture when you think about a swarm of locusts. Uh, We do not have them in the same kind of fashion that occurred back then, but it does occur in parts of our country. I remember reading a biography of George McGovern where he described what life in South Dakota was like out on the plains in a time when they had a swarm of locusts, a plague come that was so bad that they even ate the handles on their tools. Can you imagine that? Nothing green was left, and they started eating the handle of a hoe just to find something. They devoured everything in their sight. And what Midian did to Israel was just like that. They came in, they destroyed their crops, or they took them for themselves. They plundered their produce. They made life miserable for them. And what we see in this story about Gideon is that he is threshing out grain in a wine press. He's kind of ducking behind the walls of this wine press so he's low so they can't see him. Because normally you would thresh grain out in the open, but he didn't want anyone to witness what he was doing. And so he is hiding, fearful of the enemies who are attacking them. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and makes this statement. This is in Judges chapter 6 and verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon must have been looking around like, Who? I mean, who are you talking to? You know, here he is. He's just a farmer. He's a man who is fearful of his enemies, and he is crouching down in this wine press. And the angel of the Lord calls him a mighty warrior. But Sir Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. You know, I'm the lowest of the low on this pecking order. How can I do this? And God's answer is, I will be with you. I will be with you. You can do this because I am with you. Gideon's first order is that he must tear down his father's altar to Baal. It starts in the family making things right with God. And he's scared to do it. And so he does it by night with some men with him, and it is found out the next day, and they wonder, who did this? Where is the guy who did this? And we'll put him to death. And Gideon is found out, and his father actually defends him and says, cannot Baal contend for himself if Baal is indeed God? And what God does is he leads Gideon to a victory, 
Not with 32,000 men, that's too many. Anyone who's afraid can go home. Not with 22,000, excuse me, not with 10,000 men, that's too many, but with 300, God would lead them to victory over the Midianites. It was astounding. Some of the conservative estimates of the Midian army were that they had somewhere around 140,000 men. And you're going up against them with 300. So everyone will know that God did it. You know, I know I'm looking at the clock here, but boy, I've got some really fun things to share with you. No, (laughs) Uh, but there's always so much that could be shared. But I'm going to tell you one story that brings that into modern history that was very similar to the Battle of Gideon. It's the Battle of Netanyahu in 1948 in Israel. Is God still working this way? Yes, he can. And yes, he does. When Israel was restored as a nation... On May 15, 1948, they were virtually unarmed. As a nation, they owned five machine guns with about 15 rounds of ammunition. Not too big an army, is it? They owned one mortar shell, one tank. And the surrounding Arab nations gave Israel one week to exist. They decided that on eight days after Israel became a nation, they were going to overrun them and take this land back. And between Tel Aviv and Haifa, the Battle of Netanyahu occurred. The attack was planned by the Arabs uh, to come on that particular day. However, the Israelis had an idea that they were going to come, and they had a plan. It would be a trick, but it might work. On May 23, 1948, at midnight, the men, women, and children lined cars, trucks, and taxis, anything they could find, and they quietly rolled them into place on the hills overlooking their enemy armies. And they took off the mufflers and the exhaust pipes from all of the vehicles. At the same time, another group took a large number of oil drums, put rocks in them, placed them at the top of the hills, and at a given signal, the engines were started, The lights were turned on. The drums began to roll. And the Arabs were awakened in the distance by a loud blasting and rumbling sound that filled the entire area. They were unable to see where the noise was coming from or what was happening, and they thought that America had brought in Sherman tanks. And the entire Arab army of men fled, leaving behind a large case of artillery. God still works. And God still gets the glory. The land would enjoy peace for 40 years after Gideon. Then would come Samson, another flawed hero. You know the story about him. God used these individuals to raise up and deliver his people at appropriate times when they cried out to him. Well, what do we learn from this chapter of the story? Just two things and then we'll close. We learn that we can fall into the same cycle of sin. And we too need to turn to Jesus in repentance and ask him to deliver us and set us free. And secondly, we need to teach our children the scriptures. We need to live passionately for Christ and pray that they would have a first chair experience in their own life. Let's pray. Father, as we think about your word today, and sometimes these passages are just so rich and full and there's so much there. Father, would you encourage all of us to live in a way that honors you, that pleases you? And would you help our children to come into that kind of close and personal relationship with you also? 
that they might see what a wonderful and amazing God that you are and that they too would know your power and your glory. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.